sometimes controversial, often introspective, and always inspirational. This is Vocalized, the summer series podcast that explores topical issues in education in order to illuminate the role of identity in research, social justice advocacy, and the teaching. I'm your host, Nisha Terry, and as usual, I am grateful that you have chosen to listen in. Welcome to Focalized. Based on what you said and who you are, could you talk about how your identity interacts with your work and has your identity shifted over the years and has that shift or evolution impacted your work for both of you? Sure. So I think a really important piece of identity is the environmental context that you're situated within. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes there's the sense of, is this a context that's congruent with my identity or is it distal, right? Distant from my identity. In predominantly white spaces in general, those spaces are incongruent with my identity. Everything about my culture, about about what it means to be a Black woman, right? And the legacy of my ancestry, those those pieces are not congruent with a white academy. Mm -hmm. So for me, coming into the academy, realizing that I was the only Black woman on the tenure track in the School of Education and realizing that that there was a a pressure (laughs) to perform, to navigate the system, to, we always say code switch, you know, to be able to move in and out of the, in all of the spaces, right? And that's just something I think Black people just do. We just know how to flow in and out. We know, you know, it's just, it happens so organically for us. We know. Yep, yep. (laughs) So I, I truly, have learned, right? Like I said earlier about give the academy what it wants, right? How do I maintain my authentic self and give this white space what it needs, right? Mm-hmm. But also do it in a way that pushes enough, right? To make the context shift. And so the more that me being in the space automatically shifts the context, right? My identity in this space shifts the possibilities for other Black women, women of color, marginalized folks to have access to the space. So, you know, um, I'm ever cognizant of my positionality Mm -hmm. as a Black woman in (laughs) the academy um, at a predominantly white institution, which happens to be in the center of a large racial a large black city, unreal and black neighborhood. I mean, we are literally in, you know, close to the black bottom. So yeah, I don't want to be too long winded, but I I do think that being in spaces that are incongruent with who I am can have kind of ripple effects that Mm -hmm. if you are not, if you don't have a strong sense of self, if you don't have a strong racial identity or gendered identity or whatever other identities that are salient, the context can influence them and can shift, you know, your identities could shift or it'd be like, who am I? Like, who am I? Right. So how do you not get lost 
Mm. in a space like this is you have to stay connected to your roots Mm -hmm. and let your roots. What I say sometimes is like my roots, right? My family, my, you know, my family, my friends, like that serves as an antidote to some of the pain of navigating the academy. And I want to ask a quick question before Toria jumps in on this. Does it ever get heavy? Oh, it gets heavy. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because not only are you carrying just the burden of it's hard, right? So if you from a white man to a black woman to any, you know, any person trying to get tenure is hard. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hard. But you add these other layers Right. And so not only am I carrying my own burdens, I'm carrying the burden because I'm trying to break a glass ceiling or what I say, a concrete ceiling. Right. That so that other people can come behind me. Right. But what that's not what the academy is to do. Right. What the academy wants to do is to be exclusive. Right. You can only get this job if you go through a search committee and your peers review you. You can't get tenure unless your peers approve of you, Mm. you know. And so the way that it's set up is not congruent with the familial capital that is within the Black community, right? That's very opposite of how we, as a people, move and function, right? So it's not just my burden, right? I'm carrying the burden of everybody behind me, I'm carrying the burden of every black woman, girl that ever wanted to be a professor, you know, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes you take on things unnecessarily. Right. So like, why am I worrying about such and such a such and such student or whatever? Right. It's because I want to bring them along. And I really try to fight against this kind of crabs in a barrel, you know, mm-hmm. in a hot boiling barrel. I forget the analogy, but yeah. You're, you're right. I, <laughs> to fight against that because mm-hmm. what ends up happening is that we fighting each other and not really fighting the real, you know, not saying oppressor, but like the real system that is inherently impress- oppressive. So, yeah. And I like what you said. I never thought of it that way. The whole idea that the system is not set up according to our culture as black people you are so right we're all about family and that support and the system is so it's so unemotional and so it's a black person navigating a white space not and as you said not just for yourself but for everybody you know and it's yeah it gets heavy sometimes i feel it it's heavy yeah so now i'm gonna co-sign on on everything that dr (laughs) ellen said (laughs) I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think I look, I think who I am is always evolving and changing. And one of the reasons that I got into this work or I wanted to be a scholar is I really wanted to look at the way myself and then by extension, others like me navigated power dynamics. That was the really big part of this for me was not only being in white spaces, but what are the consequences 
of being myself, who has from birth been, you know, my mom will tell you my my birth story, you know, she was like, look, this girl is coming. And the doctor was like, this is your first child. You've got time. She was like, no, 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 no. She, she is coming. And, and an hour and a half later, I was there. <laughs> so <laughs> she was in labor, I think for, for maybe two hours. I was like, I got things to do. <laughs> that's, that's always been my personality, but, you know, with all the stereotypes, with all the tropes, with all the, you know, even, you know, how you engage with your parents, right. As a child, like there are, there are ways that that gets shaped and molded. So how do I show up in a way that is authentically me, but mm-hmm. still navigate those power dynamics? And that has been something I've struggled with for my entire life. Yeah, I think women like me, I just assumed that there were more, right? There were more. And I wanted to see, you know, I think part of what what drew me to this work is I wanted to validate my own experience and by extension, other people's experiences, because existing in a space that is not built for you can be very demoralizing. But I think like doing research and trying to to make sense of those experiences was my way of saying, yes, sis, you know, there is something here. And then passing that on to other women who might be able to use that and have it a little easier than I did. So Mm -hmm. I know that's convoluted and I probably didn't make it very linear, but. Listen, but that's life. (laughs) Life is not linear, (laughs) apart from aging. Yes. (laughs) The only thing about life that's linear. Uh, I want to ask you guys a little bit about the Joy Lab. What does Joy stand for? I mean, I love the name. But what does joy stand for and how do you see your work in a joy lab impacting the communities with which you work? I'm going to defer to Taraya because I'm really interested as, you know, a graduate assistant, what what she has to say about this. Sure. So the the acronym stands for the Justice Oriented Youth Lab. Right. So it really speaks to the idea of, you know, everything we talked about, about youth being equals and youth being empowered and youth being a part of our communities and youth imparting knowledge to us and um, us all living in this this community. But I, I've heard Dr. Alan Handy talk a lot about how she really wanted the lab to be named JOY. So not only is it an acronym for you know, justice-oriented youth, it's also a space, a safe space, Mm -hmm. a space where I really do feel joyful. Um, We're all women in the lab right now, and we're very diverse, and it really is a space where I go and I feel joy, right? It's, 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 you know, I've heard uh, Dr. Bettina Love talk about Black joy, but Mm -hmm. I, you know, it's, it's where I can I can experience the joy of being authentically me, both in my research, in in myself, in the conversations we have, in my friendships. Um, There really is a sisterhood and a camaraderie there that does bring a lot of joy and healing. So I think it's not only an acronym, it not only stands for something, but it is, it it does characterize the space um, and the people within. That's beautiful. I am really going to co-sign that. <laughs> I don't have anything to add. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, I mean, it. this work is hard, right? It's hard work when you are passionate about issues that you know are critical and urgent to people's livelihood, right? And lives. And not that every project is, a, is about that, but I really 
wanted to create a space where we're going to do the hard work. (laughs) We're going to go try to fight for justice, Mm -hmm. but we can do it in a way that promotes joy, that promotes the kind of sisterhood, the kind of, you know, camaraderie that, that comes when you're part of a research team. I think it also having joy as central to what we do we don't tolerate anything that doesn't reflect that, right? So it's not a space where there's, I mean, you would think you have seven women, including myself right right now, uh, six graduate assistants and myself, seven women together, a lot. Um, that there'd be a lot of drama, <laughs> <laughs> but it is drama-free, right? It is drama-free and it is very, very much a family. And so it's keeping, I think, why I am just so grateful that we, were able to come up with this, that justice-oriented youth was joy, was that anytime we pivot from that, it will always draw us back. It's our anchor, right? That yes, this is hard. Mm -hmm. Yes, even to be able to express joy. And not saying we're joyful all the time. Sometimes we're sad and crying and going through really difficult things in life, but that can, that supersedes the research, right? So if you come into a lab and the space is, this is just the work we do and we leave, what's the point of that? So yeah, so we are. So you're joyful. joy. <laughs> I may not be right now, not saying right now in this moment, but in, you know, if I'm not in a moment, but I know that eventually I'll get there or I have to look for where joy may show up in places or spaces where. It's not. And I think that's how we as a people have been able to persevere because of that Black joy, that unexplicable just joyfulness that has persisted throughout generations of the one of the most marginalized groups on the earth, right? Spirit of power. We are part of that. And, you know, I want to take that idea of joy and Black joy to transition us to the article under consideration. So the article is Becoming Critical Scholars, the Emergence of Urban Youth Scholar Identities Through Research and Critical Civic Practice. And you published this article in 2018 with Dr. Thomas L. At the time, she was a graduate research assistant in your lab. And I, as I said earlier, really liked the article. And you know what? I was going to ask Taria to kind of start us off, but I'm going to come back to you, Taria, because I want to I want to build on this idea of joy, right? And finding joy even in dark times, because I looked at how you took the time in the article, Dr. Allen Handy, to unpack notions of what urban means. And I think in your definition of urban, you kind of alluded to that joy. So could it tell us a little bit more of how you define urban and why you think it's very important for us to expand our notion or conceptualization of urban? Yeah. And I definitely can't take credit for some of the ideas that I expressed in the article. Zeus Leonardo is a scholar that um, really articulates for me, like what urban means, right? It's the beauty and brilliance in a space that has often been relegated to the euphemisms of black, poor, you know, crime, violence, right? These other ways in which people envision or take in urban spaces. And so when I am thinking about urban, of course, there's a piece about locale, right? How dense is the city? How, you know, 
I don't know what all the ways in which the census or whoever <laughs> uh, urban planners look at what urban means. But to me, it's about the beauty and the brilliance of of the people that that are there. I heard someone talk about today a lot of times when and I was listening to a podcast and they were saying that in Africa, right, Africans, well, what we know of Africans was not based on country, right? It was about tribe and how you knew your people was not necessarily by your land, right? It was by your language and your culture and your customs and your family heritage and all of those things. But when the colonizers showed up, they cared more about the land than the people that were on the land, Yeah. right? And so thinking about how urban can be defined by blight, right? Those are words that you hear in urban planning. Oh, there's blight and X, Y, and Z, but it omits the people. That's why gentrification is so dangerous, right? Because it, it care, it's not caring about the people, the legacy, the history on the land. They care about the land. And so that analogy of, you know, what's hap- what happened in Africa historically is what we see happening, a modern day version of colonization where our communities are being. I'm going to give you finger snaps. I'm sorry. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) but it's so everything happens for a reason, right? Like the fact that I just heard that podcast this morning, it was completely (laughs) relevant to our conversation right now. Yeah. So I think how do we shift and just flip right? What urban means? What does, what does our land, our, you know, place mean? And I think for me, I don't know if you all know this, but I'm from West Philly. I grew up here. This is where my immediate ancestors settled, right? So during the great migration, my grandparents and, you know, even my great grandparents came with them from South Carolina Mm -hmm. and migrated to Philadelphia, right? And my, and my grandparents settled in West Philadelphia, 1954, wow. right? It might actually been a little bit earlier than that, but moved into the house that my family had for years in 1954, right? And so this is my homeland, so to speak. And to see it shifting, right, mm-hmm. is, is really hard. So yeah, I hope that I, I know I go down these rabbit holes. I know you asked a very direct question about how do I define urban, <laughs> but rabbit yeah. holes are the reason why we're here. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I love this article for so many reasons. I think that it really gets to the heart of what we do in the Joy Lab, kind of some of our driving forces. I, I love the empowerment here. I love the 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 way that we're looking at youth. Um, first of all, just the idea of identity formation is important to me, right? We want to give youth the opportunity to formulate the identities, their identities, but then the rigor of giving them critical scholar identities, right? We're not just saying you're a student, you know, you're you're a researcher. You know, and and we are going to take your research and see how you can apply it to your community um, and and the space that you occupy. I just love that for so many reasons. I think it's so empowering. I think 
it's it's breaking down a system that wasn't built for for black and brown youth. I, I think this this is exactly what we need more of. I think this is what Bettina, Dr. Bettina Love talks about, you know, in, in her books around, you know, giving giving students, black and brown students, the opportunity to thrive, not just survive. Um, and I think this, it just does it brilliantly. You know, you, you mentioned you. the whole idea of <laughs> Dr. Love, right? And in, as you were speaking, I jotted down something because I've been to a number of seminars and sessions and I've read a number of articles where the idea has been articulated that the school system as it currently exists in the U.S., it just wasn't created for students of color. And it's true. It wasn't. It's very true. And, and very so true. The question becomes, what would a school system look like? What would education look like if education was designed for students of color? You know, I'm reading uh, Gloria Ladson Billings. She has a, there's a, coll- a collation of her essays. Mm-hmm. And I think she was, uh, they were connecting her work to critical race theory. And that idea came out too, right? Where it's like, well, the school system and the curriculum is designed by people who are whose goal, whether implicitly or not, whether they're aware of it or not, is to, prom- is to preserve the status quo. And it doesn't give students of color the room to grow and to thrive and to be. And so the question is, what would schooling look like? What would education look like for students of color? And as you said it, I realized this could be something that education looks like for students of color. Absolutely. I mean, we talked a little bit in the in the beginning about the collectivist society, right? We are we are collective people. And yet we sit, we we have students come into, into classrooms, turn off their cell phones, and they're not allowed to talk for 50 minutes, 90 minutes while somebody lectures at them. I mean, that is not how any of us were raised, right? We were raised going to the hair salon and spending the whole day there in the chair, just talking and exchanging ideas. Uh, the barbershop, same thing. There was a collaboration that happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, we were raised with our elders teaching us, you know, and how, how much of that is infused in our curriculum, aside from grandparents' day. You know, when do we invite the elders to come in and impart their wisdom, Mm -hmm. right? Because let me tell you something. My grandmother, um, I miss her terribly. She, she passed away three years ago, but up, up until that, that day, if she gave me a certain look, I would shape up, you know, and and I'm, (laughs) I'm well into my thirties, you know, just, just the idea of, Again, that intergenerational education, capitalizing on the things that already work for our culture and our youth, music, movement, I mean, all of those things. And, and, and like you said, just, just saying, I value you, right? Th- this piece, because that is what, what Dr. Alan Handy and, and the research team said here is, I value you, I see you, and I believe in you. Right. And if that was the message, oh my goodness, you, you wouldn't be able to stop our youth. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Jamaica and I was telling someone, there's so much missing from education here. Because mm. in Jamaica, even at the, what we call 
and it's called elementary here we call it primary in jamaica and even at the kindergarten or basic school level there's so much culture and movement you know we're always doing dramatic pieces and choral speaking and we're singing and we're dancing all throughout the education system and so you have that in everything it's heavily infused and then there's that village mentality you know we all work together and so for me when i started teaching here it's like of course you're going to act out shakespeare <laughs> what do you mean you've never acted out shakespeare before I go, what? it's a play you know he's a playwright <laughs> why aren't we acting it <laughs> and yeah of course you're going to create a a show and you're going to use your television show that you created to talk about the concepts you've learned. Like, why not? Why not drama? Why not music? And my kids look at me like, miss, are you crazy? But they did it. But it's like, I was always the crazy English teacher doing all these crazy things. And I'm like, but it's not different. It's not anything new, but it's culturally different. And so it would be so beautiful to explore what would happen if our students or students of color were able to experience education that way where their cultural expressions are centered, yeah. you know, their identities are centered. So you know, and then there were the, the affirmations, right? We had all these things we had to recite. Any students who went to school in Jamaica can tell you about the great men and what they did to achieve greatness. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, it's and so it's so powerful. That article and what you guys just said is just it's invigorating. Oh, that's that's one of my favorite articles. And, and Dr. Alan Handy will tell you, I like I sought her out when I when I was thinking about applying to this program. Mm -hmm. I was like, she she is the she is the person I want to work with. <laughs> so she doesn't have space in her lab. I'm just abandoning this mission. <laughs> it is definitely reciprocal. You know that. This has been vocalized. Thank you for listening and we'll chat next episode.